You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 86. We are talking about murder on the Orient Express. Extra murdering. Extra. Came out in 2017. We did watch this. I think we watched this on Prime because we thought, I think, I thought we might have some of those credits for choosing, you know, days out. So, but it's also available on Apple if you're interested. It stars Kenneth Branagh, who also directed it. Penelope Cruz, Willem Dafoe, Judy Dench, Daisy Ridley, Leslie Odom Jr. Shout out to uh, Hamilton. Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, Josh Gad, and Olivia Colman. It, let's see, was filmed in Malta and Italy and Switzerland, New Zealand, Istanbul. Some green screen, I think, too. Yes, Turkey, France, and London. But those were some sh- filming locations. Yeah, lots of nice locations. It is based on an Agatha Christie novel, and this screenplay was written by Michael Green. The synopsis of this film is when a murder occurs on a train on which he's traveling, celebrated detective... Hercule Poirot. <laughs> Hercule Poirot. Poirot? Is it okay. Poirot? Just a little note for the listeners. I am going to talk about this character by the actor's name because I cannot say Hercule Poirot. Okay, I missed it. I should have asked my French friend today how to correctly pronounce this. Yes. Maybe you could ask him to give us a phonetic and I can put it in the show notes. Sure, that'd be great. Okay. Anyway, when that guy is recruited to solve the case. (laughs) Tagline, I only got one for you. Everyone is a suspect. Oh, that's actually that's a good one. That's right on the nose, and it's kind of fun. Yeah, sure. All right, Mike, kick us off with the pickup line of "Murder on the Orient Express." So I paused and went back, but the actual first line of dialogue is unintelligible. But the first intelligible line of dialogue is, "He said four minutes precisely," ah. and that supports my thing because they're talking about how meticulous that Hercule Poirot is. And four minutes precisely. So it does actually tie into that. Yes, yes. All right. I'm going to talk about a little bit of the acting and casting as we kick it off here. Much of the cast and extras were made up of Kenneth Branagh's, and he's a sir also. So this is our second film with sirs, with his closest friends and acquaintances, many of which have either been directed by him in previous projects, co-starred with him, or have been in a theater production with him. And then we found this tidbit a little funny, so I wanted to share it. One day, actor Johnny Depp showed up late, several hours, <laughs> and was hungover. And Brana proceeded to dress him down in front of the whole crew. And he said, I expect all of my actors to be on time and well prepared. If this is too difficult for you, I have no problem finding another actor. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. (laughs) And apparently Mr. Depp was able to show up early every single day afterward. Well done, Mr. Brana. You figured out the currency for Johnny Depp. So Mr. Brana is not the first person to embody the character of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. 
there was some disdain that I felt coming off of that pronunciation. Di- it just feels like such a pr- I'm, I'm, yes, I'm disdained that you can I, that I can't say that. Why don't you just do Hercules, Hercules <laughs> that way? Just call him Hercules. Tony Randall portrayed him in 1965. Wait, what? Yes. The famous Albert Finney. That's yeah. probably what most people remember in 74. Right. Another Sir Peter Ustinoff right. from 78 to 88. Alfred Molina in mm. 2001. So, you know, big shoes to fill there, uh, Brana. <laughs> right. I think he did well, though. Yes. And like you said, there were big screens with animations of the moving landscapes that were installed to create the visual effect of the moving train. But they did actually create a train and they did, the crew assembled one mile of track to film some scenes on. Isn't that amazing? And so they were so lifelike and so well done that Josh Gad actually got motion sickness during the filming of this movie. I was going to say that in addition to... I love putting the screens outside the car to, with motion to to make it look like the train is moving. But also, I don't know if you noticed this, they added a subtle camera shake. Oh. When the train was moving, there is a little... and I know how to do that. I want to give <laughs> credit to either the camera department, if they did it practically, yeah. or the editor. The editor, have, yeah. Because it was enough to be realistic without enough to trigger... My I hate handheld yeah. reflex. It is really tricky. And we're kind of joking and inferring to in second story, the elevator comes to a sudden stop. And so we knew that it needed to kind of shake. And so I thought we did it. Did we do it both practically? Because I know it in editing, I thought I did a little. Oh, no, maybe I we did it practically when it stops, but when it starts, I did a little shutter, like I, a little. I think you may have added a little, little, yeah, along with the sound, to bump the the visual so that people right, knew. But that I thought that started. we had our cinematographer bump the camera yeah, when it stopped, and yeah. we had them react. Right. This was part of a, a filmmaking trick here. I'm going to let the listeners behind. The curtain, the secrets. Pull the curtain back. Right. Tell them. You need a cue that's visual but not audio for your actors to react. And some people may be familiar with the old Star Trek original series where when they were going through some sort of combat, everyone on the set of the bridge would all rock to the left or to the right in unison. Well, the way you do that is your director points one way or the other. So what I did was I had Pepe, the paper plate, and Pepe had a happy face. I drew with a Sharpie on one side and a sad face on the other. And I would use this to cue the actors. Right. So when they see happy face, everything's good. When I flip to the sad face, they would know to react. Yeah. So a little helpful hint there for your uh, filmmakers out there. Pepe lives in our garage. Yep, Pepe does. Studio G as it is known. Okay. I loved this different cinematography or this different choices that the DP and Prana, I'm sure, kind of came up with they said like when the murder is discovered it's an overhead shot it's as this is bizarre like i i i mean yes it is it but it stuck with me i made note of it Uh but why he said because he wanted i think he didn't want it to be from any one character's perspective and he wanted the details of the scene to be seen in like in totality and entirety so that (laughs) 
are you looking at me like that? No, I'm trying to process this because, so this bumped me. Okay. I think it was visually distinctive, so credit to that. Yeah. But the thing is, it was so high up. Yeah. And there was no context above it. It immediately told me that I'm now seeing a shot on a soundstage in (gasps) Pinewood Studios. Do you think other people that aren't filmmakers would have thought that? Probably that's not. interesting. Probably not. But that that's the first thing that came to me was is this BTS? Right? <laughs> well, let me Somebody read... in, in in the scaffolding had their iPhone <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, let's watch Kenneth Branagh act." Let me read you this and see if okay. it helps right. in okay. context, contextualize sure, sure, sure. it. So, according to Branagh, Certain colleagues voiced concern while filming the overhead scene, revealing the body in a myriad of clues. Because he wasn't shooting any coverage, close-ups, for any of it. He wasn't interested in a CSI-like close-up. I wanted to offer up in the big screen format all of the things. They're still there in the pictures. So the watch is still there. The wounds are still there. Johnny Depp's face is still there. Does that help you at all? That's an interesting perspective I didn't think of. And I do agree that it's visually distinctive. Uh huh. But still, it, it, even the second time I saw the film, it bumped me. It, it took me out of the film. Oh, interesting. And, I, I just, I mean, I was reading the trivia at the same time we were watching the film. So I knew when I saw it and I did notice that it was just a non-traditional angle for And from that perspective, that's cool. And there are some other daring or I guess non-traditional choices that Brana makes throughout this film. So I'm, I don't want it to seem like I say it was bad. No, it's just, it, it, it bumped me and maybe it's just a filmmaker thing. Well, I, I do wonder, was he playing this was shot in 65 millimeter and he wanted that because of the the visceral colors that would be yeah there, as well as I think the contrast of the snow against the train. I loved the one shot we were just talking about it earlier today, where it starts the cameras on a gimbal and it starts way low under the train. Even you see the scaffolding of the train trestle. And then it slowly comes up and you think they're just going to stop, which then beautifully frames Daisy Ridley and Brana in the train car, which like you said, doesn't make any sense. It's obviously like a, what would you call the car that has all the cargo kind of just the, like well, where all it, the luggage it's is. It's the most traditional kind of rail car with the big sliding door on either side. On both sides. And so both of them are open, which it's freezing. You wouldn't do that. You're totally right. They're sitting on other people's luggage, but it perfectly frames them. And you see the snowy mountains behind. I mean, it's a beautiful shot. And then they hover there for a second and then they go up. And now we're looking down on these two. Right. So that's that's one of those kinds of shots that I, I thought was fascinating. There's also a shot where I, I called it a, a tracking shot when Poirot, I think we're deciding to call it. He first meets <laughs> Caroline Hubbard, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And they walk from the very end of the train up to the very front. And the camera is outside the cars. And so it tracks along with them. But then the each of those rectangular windows, right, is basically traveling from left to right across the screen, which, of course, to some people, some of us, reminds us of film itself yes. traveling across yes. 
the the, the projector. So that was, I thought, very cool. So mad props to Kenneth Brown for some very clever and creative camera use. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I also liked, this feels not a trope, but at least something that we've seen before in other films is that when the suspects are remembering and, and kind of reporting what they witnessed, those appear in black and white. Right. So I just like I would, the contrast. I wouldn't call that a cliche. I think that's no. actually part of our visual language that we now yeah. use in film. Yeah. I, well, I didn't want to use the word trope. I said. Yeah, I was I was yes ending. Okay. <laughs> I loved it when they were filming in the bar car because it had these beautiful geometric windows or the glass yeah. behind them. They were like, I don't know if they were etched or beveled or both. I mean, it was just... The, the geometric patterns behind them, the glass, it was it was just, it was very, that art deco that, you know, it just put you in the time that we were in. I, I would call it beveled, but speaking of those sets, which I'm going to interject and say, I'm jealous of Brana's budget for sets if he was able to build these car, railroad cars. Yeah, he was. Because I, oh, I struggled to build versus... an elevator. <laughs> But well, he we'll talk later about money. He had a little bit more than you did. He did a tiny bit, but I don't know if this is actually the way they were built. It seems odd if they were, but I noticed that in some of the railroad cars, such as the one with the people's cabins in it, mm-hmm. the hallway part way down made like an angle to the other side of the car. And there was kind of a 45 degree angle wood paneling and it was beautiful. I just don't know if that makes any sense from a usability perspective, why you would have that extra corner in the middle of the car. But it was great for shooting because there was that motion of when they would cross the camera back and forth as mm-hmm. they went from one direction to the other. I, I, I thought most most train cars have the walkway straight down the middle of it, except mm-hmm. for the ones where you sleep and then it's on one side because you're trying to maximize. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but I thought that was it. That was a clever choice of production design to add that because it gave visually interesting things for you to shoot against. Mm-hmm. Good thinking. Good thinking. All right. I love there was a beautiful scene and I almost rewinded it so I could see he's talking about his I believe it's his dearly departed Catherine and he's holding a picture of her and his face is on the right right side of the screen and he's sitting by the window and it felt like it wasn't there at the beginning of the scene. But over time, his reflection in the window kind of came up to being more present. And I loved that shot of his reflection. What what other cinema, cin, cin, what other visuals did you like? <laughs> Cinematographic. We always struggle with that. I know. So, I think we've talked about m- most uh, of them. You want to move on to writing? Because I will say, much like Mr. Holmes, we we picked this because you responded to it so well, and we're right. also. We're not doing what's the one we saw in the theater just recently that Death was, on the Nile. Yeah, Death on the Nile. We loved I love that one, I think well, more than this one except oh, for the fascinating. snake. Oh, fascinating. Except for the snake. Right. The snake. I literally yelled out loud in the theater. Yeah, that's okay. Don't surprise me with the snake. It's that easy. Why is it always snakes? 
<laughs> well, there's lots of therapy I could go into. No, but that was that was. We want to keep Raiders the, the Lost Ark quote oh. <laughs> I was throwing in there. Keeping it movies. <laughs> there's a Samuel L. Jackson film I haven't seen for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you or me? Uh, you mean Black Snake Moan? No. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't talking about that one. All right, writing. Tell me why you liked, or or just in general, why you like this movie. Because this is Agatha Christie. It is Agatha Christie. So I wanted to mention, historically, I have been less of a fan of Agatha Christie than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, because I felt like in her books, and again, I haven't read them in many years, and so maybe I was just a dimwit, but I felt like the key to solving the mystery was not revealed to me until at the end when she, when she solves the mystery. And that felt unfair, mm-hmm. right? I didn't mm-hmm. like that. However, in this one, I love that it it plays with a fundamental assumption of murder mysteries. And that is that all of the clues will point to a single culprit. And the neat thing about this one is that they were all involved. And there's a point where Hercules says... <laughs> Call him HP. Each one of the people is kind of guilty, but then there's one alibi and then kind of guilty and one alibi. So they they each are not wholly guilty, but when you put them all together, you get a murder. Right. And that, I think, is a very clever way to do it. Now, why do I like this film? I think a lot of it is the visuals, right? It's an interesting, we've talked about a very creatively shot film. I like the acting from some of the characters. There's a lot of characters, so it's kind of hard to say they don't all get a tremendous amount of screen time. But I think key to that is Kenneth Braun himself as our HP. I think he pulls it off even with the goofy mustache. I love it how he throws in a little bit of humor, but not in a way to make his character like campy or that we don't take him seriously. I loved it at one point. He goes, the killer is mocking me. Yeah. And he follows that with good, his first mistake. (laughs) But at one point, yeah, he says, my name is Hercule Poirot and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. So he's got a certain arrogance. But then they show him laughing at a tale of two cities. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've read that book, maybe 40 years. But I don't remember I don't being remember a comedy. La- that is a book I read in school, and I don't remember that. Don't remember being, being a comedy no. at all. But th- that humanizes the character, I think. Yeah. And as much as sometimes he can be kind of irritating, I think Johnny Depp did a good job at his character. And if anything, I think Josh Gad was playing a little out of type for himself. He normally gets kind of the the uh, louder slapstick kind of role. But so I think the acting was part of it. But certainly, uh, to be honest, I think it's the the sets and the costumes, right? Just yeah. the visual. It looked so tasty and well, everything. It was, it was so opulent. Like even yeah. I made note, you know, we love the show. Don't tell. And in the opening scenes, they're showing the staff getting the dining car ready to go. Right. And there's actually a device that one of the maitre d's was using to measure the distance between the edge of the table and the bottom of the silverware right. and the plate. And I just thought, wow, the fact that they're going to that detail to have the, you know, the each place setting 
has a look and they want them to be consistent. It's like, it's not enough just to put a nice, beautiful bone china that has gold rim on it on the table. It has to be the exact distance from the edge as everyone else's. Yeah, isn't it interesting that I saw that and my takeaway was that was oppressive that some poor schmuck is going to get beaten with a stick if it's not exactly three centimeters from the edge of the table. Right. Which both could be true. I'm uh, perhaps a little bit more a burger and picnic kind of guy, I guess. Oh, totally. I'm not saying that that's what I prefer. I'm just saying it it definitely showed. Yeah. I think. And then when you have somebody like Judy Dench's character who comes in with the dog and the dog is right there in the dining right. car with everybody else and she has is not apologetic at all that you're going to dine with my dog which is uh, i suppose not unreasonable but yes it is an opulent way to travel i don't think poor people took the orient express no uh, so it lets you know the the cast of characters that are going to be on this right. train there was and no steerage basically for exactly. whatever the train equivalent is. But what's fascinating is this in essence is a bottle app, right? Absolutely. You take all of these characters and you pack them into one uh, location. Confined location. Yeah. Then you murder somebody and yeah. that raises the stakes and puts a time ticking time on. I mean, it's a classic kind That's of That's why I thought it was kind of interesting that either the screenwriter or Agatha Christie has the train derail. Because now you have an opportunity for people to get off. The killer could have gotten off the train. I guess you're in the middle of the Swiss Alps, so where are you going to run to? But you could, presumably. (laughs) You could have a getaway friend. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) With with a train. There were no helicopters, so you would need a... We need a, a Sherpa, a, get- right. a getaway Sherpa, a getaway Sherpa. <laughs> Maybe you get two, one to carry you and one to carry your luggage. <laughs> That's what the donkey's for. <laughs> well, remember this is 19th century. They used uh, darker colored people like donkeys back then. Oh. That was, oh, that was how just, they did it. You made it dark. I made it dark. You're right. But again, William or Willem Dafoe plays the racist German. So, so it was there. It was it was kind of there. All right, all right. Let's get back on track. Back uh-huh. ha- happier, happier stuff. <laughs> happier. Costuming. I, Sir Kenneth Branagh, was aware of the over extravagance of his character's mustache. <laughs> yeah. He justified it by the fact that there were fifteen quotes in the original novel mentioning the mustache. Kenneth Branagh am- admitted that he tried but was unable to grow out a full mustache for playing HP. Uh, you may note that there was a special. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> so, so someone had to make this. Either, but was that a thing, I wonder? I don't know. We have to ask it Miriam. Was, it was apparently leather looking, but it was a mustache oh. guard while he was sleeping. But it had the straps around the back of his head to hold this leather thing in, in across his crazy mustache. In these post-COVID times, it just looked like he slept with his mask, like a skinnier mask. Just I thought little. it was looked more CPAP to me, but... Yeah. Oh, and see, I didn't notice it was leather. To me, it looked like pink fabric, like like what your pajamas would be made of. But it, it looks shiny and stiff to me, to oh, my eye. How interesting. All right. Well, we're going to have to find a picture and send it to her and see if she have her do some research for us. Yeah, we maybe need to put her on the payroll. Under sound, at one point, I believe it was after the train derailed, but maybe not. Maybe it was when, no, no, no. It's shortly after they left the station in Istanbul and they're traveling. I hear a train whistle. 
And I, I know for a fact that the sound editor got that from the Thomas the Tank Engine collection of train whistles. It was exactly the same train I whistle that Thomas used. I have heard the Thomas train whistle right. more than I care to admit. And it paid off because much like the Wilhelm scream, I recognized <laughs> yeah. okay. that train whistle. Now we're going to have to get Brennan involved to look at a still of the train engine and tell us which one of those, was it Henry or Bertram or what was the name of the train in the Thomas series that is pulling the train on the the movie? Right. I should know. Okay. I was frustrated in this film because there were a good amount of musical transitions. Right. Right. And I had to ride the volume because we would have it up for dialogue and then we would have to turn it down for these musical transitions and then turn it back up for dialogue. And I just wish... I would love to speak to a sound editor and ask him what in the heck is wrong with them. I don't know why. Because not all films do this, but a lot of films do this. The music is just insanely loud. When you export the movie, you can set it to not peak above a certain amount. I know this. But when they do the original mix, what moron is sitting there and says, okay, we're listening to Kenneth Branagh speak. We're listening to Michelle Pfeiffer speak. Hey, let's jack it up to Jet Engine for this music transition. That makes no sense. You have to do that on purpose. Right. Music should be a mix. You know what it's like? It It is the cinematic equivalent of when you go from appetizer to main course, the waiter pries your mouth open and dumps a bunch of ghost pepper hot sauce in there. And they're like, okay, now you can have your, your filet of soul. Yeah, it's not a palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah. Good job, Hollywood. <laughs> All right, that's our <laughs> musical rant. <laughs> yeah, and that was good vivid imagery on my part. Yeah, I'm good. pretty proud of myself. <laughs> All right. Did Murder on the Orient Express have any head trauma? <laughs> yes. There are. Uh, th- there's one in particular that we start the film with. There's this brilliant scene which establishes that Hercules is super smart because he sticks his cane into the wall. Right. And then later, the bad guy runs away and he runs face first into it. So I'm counting that as head trauma. Okay. Technically, though, it maybe caught him in the Adam's apple. I didn't quite see. And then I'm going to say there are actually quite a few of them when HP Uh chases our buddy Josh Gad across the train trestle. Yes. There's a lot of falling. There is a lot of head trauma, I believe, yeah. in those Yeah, so I'm going to go scenes. ahead and, and, and chalk that up, even though I, I didn't count specific ones. I agree. There, there are quite a few falls. I agree. Now, this is definitely a mystery thriller. Do we get any smoochies? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. I do not have recorded any smoochie. I don't think so. There's a scene any. where Johnny Depp as Ratchet gets really close to Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh-huh. Definitely, he invades her personal space. Yeah. But no actual lip locking. Lip locking. And this is a train movie, but prior to them getting on the train or maybe after, do we have a driving review? We don't. The only related thing, in addition to the gorgeous train itself with the cars and stuff, uh-huh. is the the white yacht, the steam yacht yes. that some of them take at the beginning. Love the aesthetic of that gorgeous stuff. Yes. Yes, that's true. All right, you get you get a, a week off of a driving <laughs> review. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. All right. This is episode 86, Murder on the Orient Express. It came out in 2017. We watched it on Amazon Prime for, I think, $3.99. The budget for this film was $55 million. Wowzers. So when you have that kind of money, you get to build whatever train you want. That's 10,000 times what we had for Second Story. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling better about my elevator now. And Brana, it makes sense why he got to make another one, because domestically he doubled it, almost doubled, at $102.8 million. And worldwide, so all told, he made $351 million. So that's a 6.4 multiplier of his original budget. That's pretty good. But I'm telling you, I think he could have just broken even and still made the second one once he told the executives, I got Gal Gadot signed on. Because <laughs> that's butts and seats. Yeah, yeah. That's, wow, a 6X. Good yeah. job, Kenny. Yeah, he's doing good. Let's see, a 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb. A little stingy, low. yeah. Yeah, pretty low. Rotten Tomatoes, critics give it 61%, and audiences also didn't respond too strongly to this. They only gave it a 54%. Ooh. I know. That's rough, huh? Still fresh, though. Yeah, but though. they bought a lot of tickets for that low score. Right? It's odd. Right? It is just under two hours at one hour and 54 minutes. It is rated PG-13, and it is listed as a crime mystery drama. The studio that supplied us this film is 20th Century Fox. It won for Best Production Design for International Studio Feature Film period piece at the British Film Designers Guild Awards. Do, doesn't it have to win something at the British Film Designers Guild Awards? I would think so, especially <laughs> with that mustache on a British guy. Right? <laughs> so that wraps it up for episode 86, Murder on the Orient Express. Please join us next week when we will be talking about North by Northwest by... Alfred Hitchcock. Thank you. His name left me. Yeah, I could I could say Hitchcock, but I couldn't think of his first Just name. Just say Alf. Alf. Alfred Hitchcock. And it will be next week's episode. So never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to DodgeMediaProductions.com. Subscribe, share, Leave a comment and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 